Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. I'm your host, Ben Ryman. Uh, I'd like to welcome Dr. Nicole Hollins to the show. Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Hello, hello. It's great to be here. Awesome. Before we get started, I just wanted to do. A, I wanted to just quickly do a, a, a bit of a acknowledgement uh, of uh, the First Nations, uh, where I'm producing this podcast. I'm on a. I'm, I live in an area that has essentially four First Nations: uh, the uh, the Comox First Nation, the Klehus First Nation, the Homaku First Nation, and the Klaaman First Nation. And I'm I'm butchering that, but that's part of what I kind of wanted to share today. So I had a um, um, these First Nations were actually one first na- one one essentially community prior to the colonizers coming over, and they separated them and uh, onto the onto reserves. And uh, uh, but the lands themselves have never changed, um, and uh, uh, but they became essentially separate 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 entities. Um, I haven't learned much about the first three that I mentioned, uh, uh, and and I intend to, um, mostly because this, I think the 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 locations of the of the of the of the I guess the um, the governments of each First Nation um, are in aren't aren't near me. Um, they're they're like a two ferry ride uh, trip to get to. Um, and I just haven't made it over there to, to visit those. But the last one, um, which is spelled T-L apostrophe A-M-I-N, um, is not pronounced Tla'amen, as many of us us, us uh, local folks say. Other folks have seen it spelled S-L, Tla'amen. That's not how you pronounce it either, apparently. The way I did it, Tla'amen, is not how you pronounce it either. Um, and... Uh, this local, the local cultural coordinator, a guy named Drew Blaney, um, who I've had the the honor of meeting and working with a little bit, um, uh, he put a post on on Facebook yesterday that that really resonated, and so I just kind of wanted to share it briefly before we kind of get into the podcast. And Drew was shared a post from someone else, and he was talking about. He basically said that it's not, you know, our First Nations not pronounced any of these three. Um, uh, and and the gist of the post was, and 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 his point was, stop going to sort of other sources to try to figure out how to pronounce these different words. Listen to the folks that speak them, and and learn from them. And it was just it was so simple and and perfect. Um, and, but you know, in the end, he didn't actually have. You know, he didn't actually, it, it wasn't a video, it was, it was typed, so he didn't actually say how, how he says that term. But he gave a couple of really nice resources um, through the comments. And there's and, and for folks listening out there, uh, and I believe this applies, I know this applies to Canada, but I believe a lot of the languages in First Nations in, in, in you know, north of, north of the border um, are similar to those in the States. Um and there's this website, and I believe it's called First Voices, something like that. If you look up First Voices or FirstVoices.org, um, and you can look up any 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 language, certainly in the sort of Canadian kind of uh, First Nations realm, um, and it'll give you audio pronunciations of 
of all the terms for all the places, the people, everything, all their language. And so I kind of went there and found the, the uh, and it's almost a K. It's, it, 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 it's one of these sort of throat type things that I think you need to be born with and practice over years. But it's almost like, it's like, and, and again, I'm probably butchering it. Uh, but I highly recommend checking out the, the, the First Voices website. And then there's also an app, which I got, um, uh, which is pretty cool. Um, and it's called, let's see if I can get it on the screen, but it's called the, the First Voices Keyboard. Nice. And basically, you can install this app, select your language, and then just like other you know language keyboards, you can switch your keyboard over to the to the text of that local First Nation, and so that's how I actually found out how to pronounce how to where to learn to pronounce this term, as I used the keyboard, typed it into the First Voices search, and and it brought up the word. So it's really neat, uh, really just a neat way to sort of kind of make that connection and learn the language. I had um, uh, I heard overheard Drew talking about walking into the mall one day into Walmart, and one of the Walmart greeters used a a Tlaman language uh, greeting to say hello. And I thought, oh, I thought that was just wonderful. Uh, and these folks are using these apps and these sorts of things to kind of figure that piece out. So um, a little piece that I learned this week about our local First Nation, and I hope to continue to do so. And uh, yeah, um, thank you for letting me share that. Oh, yeah. Thank you for sharing. Uh, yeah, you bet. Um, so um Brought Nicole on, on, on the podcast uh, initially, kind of to talk uh, for, for an article that I, that, that I found online that she had written, uh, along with uh, another fellow, Dr. Cody Morris, called On the Uncanny Similarities Between Police Brutality and Client Mistreatment. And you can get a bit of a perspective on this article and this story. Uh, Cody did an interview, I want to say last year, it might have been the year before, um, with uh, ABA Inside Track and gives his kind of perspective on things. Um, uh, but I think I think uh, you'll find uh, today's conversation will be, will be different and, and have a lot of new information, uh, particularly because of uh, the expertise that that Nicole has and um, and and contributed to the paper that Cody definitely acknowledges, but doesn't have that perspective. And I think I think it's going to be really really helpful and really cool. But before we get into that, uh, I thought it would be really cool just to kind of hear uh, from you, kind of how, how you got into the field of ABA, you know, what what, what brought you here, um, and uh, and and just a little bit about your journey from sort of the, those beginnings to, to now, and then from there kind of maybe finishing off kind of why you had an interest in this topic and uh, a couple of the other articles that I found that you wrote um, sort of related more to, uh, you know, equity in kind of school settings. Definitely. So I can just jump in. Um, Initially, I think my story is pretty similar to a lot of others as far as how they got started in the field of behavior analysis. Always knew I wanted to work with children. I just didn't know which way. Um, I entertained the idea of being a teacher, maybe a pediatrician, and I didn't find out until about behavior analysis until I was an undergrad. So I went to my undergraduate program was Central Michigan University, and there I had my first exposure to a behavior modification course. I think I was in my junior year in college, and after I took that first course, I was pretty much hooked on the science 
and knew like that's exactly what I wanted to do with my life. <laughs> so I I did just that. I graduated from Central Michigan University with my Bachelor's of Science in Psychology and Spanish. And then I went on to pursue my master's degree and my PhD at Western Michigan University underneath Dr. Stephanie Peterson. And um, during my time there, I had just an amazing experience with seeing the, the scope of the science. Initially, I think people are initially exposed to behavior analysis with only working with children with autism, but being in the program that I was in and my amazing mentor, um, through her supervision and mentorship, I was exposed to behavior analysis in group home settings, behavior analysis, of course, in our ABA settings, behavior analysis in public schools. And in public schools, that is really where I found my passion. And essentially, all of my master's program and my PhD was in the public schools. So all of my experiential hours occurred in the public schools. And um, wow. through that experience, I got a chance to see what the real practice is <laughs> outside of school can only teach you so much, right? So you can go to class, you can take your exams, you can um, present on projects, right? Um, but in the actual setting and collaborating with real humans, real teachers who are going through a lot, especially over these past couple of years, um, it really just, mm -hmm. you know, highlighted the need for why I felt like I needed to be in this setting and um, the value that I could see myself providing to not only the teachers, but also the students. So um, during that time, I worked in special education classrooms or early childhood special education classrooms and typically developing Head Start classrooms and then also in daycare settings. So the majority of my experiential hours and um, then I you know, progressed on to being a supervisor and a mentor. All that happened in the public schools. Hmm. So I graduated Western Michigan in 2021. So as you can imagine, this last couple of years have been just great with COVID. <laughs> so, but I made it out, I made it out and I graduated. And um, my dissertation was on uh, essentially looking at two active student responding modalities to determine the best way to teach college students in online synchronous platforms. So that was um, my dissertation. And then I graduated. I, I jumped the gun. I did want to highlight uh, dissertation because doing a dissertation during COVID and being 100% remote just teaches you a lot and uh, humbles you a lot as well. So I am thankful for the opportunities that that provided. And I actually just um, submitted that paper for publication in the Journal of um, the Journal of behavioral education that was just recently accepted for publication so that is exciting amazing congrats yeah so light at the end of the tunnel <laughs> well after graduation i um, accepted a position at a local autism agency as the director of professional development and training i have a very strong training and systems background so i was initially mm. interested in the position because i thought okay this would be a great opportunity to train some BCBAs and also to make systemic level changes in an organization to um, directly impact the clients that we serve. Um, within two months of that position, I was just reminded of how much I am really passionate about work in the public schools and working and collaborating with teachers. So I got back on the job market 
and um, just recently accepted a position as a postdoctoral researcher with the University of Kansas at the Juniper Gardens Mm. Children's Project. So um, I recently started about three or four months ago, and this experience has been great because I'm learning a lot about grant writing processes, um, how to even conceptualize a grant, um, budgeting, everything that's involved in grant writing, and also gaining some really cool manuscript, just writing experience as well. So that is where I started and where I currently am. And what's next? No idea, but I am (laughs) aligning myself with values. So I am just pursuing things that align with reinforcers in areas that I am extremely passionate in. Love that. Um, I want to pick apart a couple of the, a couple of those things and a couple of questions uh, and comments. It's interesting. I've had a few guests now, uh, you know, sort of preface with, you know, they had a similar story, you know, um, but it's, it's so different. I think again, and I've said this a few times on a few different episodes, so different in the U S as far as the track folks take to get into this field. Um, and you talked about sort of this, the undergrad and, and uh, you know, I think, you know, I think that's brilliant of these universities to sort of, you know, have their PhD programs, but, you know, start pitching their stuff early in undergrad, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and kind of, and kind of getting that message out. My undergrad experience in, involved, you know, literally a chapter, you know, on, on, on behavior analysis, maybe. Um, and, uh, and this, and it wasn't, I, I'm not that old. This wasn't in the seventies or anything. Uh, but, um, um, you know, there, there usually, there, there really isn't a undergrad sort of pathway to sort of learning about it. We have a few Canadian undergrad ABA specific programs that you can take. And it's interesting. I don't know sort of what motivates someone to go from high school into an undergrad ABA program, but that might be an interesting conversation with one of, one of those schools one day. Uh, But, you know, I think, I think because I I think because behavioral analysis was essentially, you know, created and born in the U S there's been a lot more, uh, programs have developed over the years, so it's it's just it's it it's uh, it's a long way long winded uh, way of expressing my jealousy um, <laughs> of you folks because you're able to sort of you know get that get that exposure early on and and start making those connections and you know feasibly if you can do well in your undergrad the references that you're going to be getting are this are from the same folks that will be doing the masters and PhD programs. And so I think that that can be really helpful. Uh, you know, whereas I, th- I had, I had essentially, I had to go back to school when I finished, I had my undergrad, but I had to go back to school and take a bunch of sort of ABA esque courses that had now existed that didn't exist when I did my undergrad in order to apply for a master's degree. So it's different uh, for sure. Did you do any, but another thing that I see that's kind of common with at least with guests I've had on is that they seem to do uh, a pretty fast track from undergrad to master's to PhD uh, often before having any exposure to, you know, sort of 
real life work. Mm-hmm. And, and I know you mentioned that in your master's, you kind of were, were able to get some. So did you do any ABA work when you were in your undergrad? Outside of working at the autism center? Um, no, not any work outside of the university as an undergraduate student, as a master's student and as a PhD student. Yes. Um, not only through my experience, but then also through individual consultations with teachers and districts. So that provided another layer of um, just support <laughs> and another layer to, yeah, to yeah. see how you can provide impact in that way. Right. I think I missed, I must have missed the piece that there was an autism center that you worked in yes. in, in the undergrad. So that, that was part of the university, you were saying? That was part of the university. It was a brand new mm. autism center. So I was a part of the initial, mm. you know, we saw the walls go up in the center. We had our first client in wow. the center. So um, my little cohort was a part of that first group. And um, yeah, that was just that, that center, that space, those humans will always have a very um, close close what is the phrase people say close <laughs> close to my heart close to or, my heart yes you know. i'm doing it with my hands yeah, but no yeah. one can see <laughs> they will always have a close place to my heart just because that's where it all started that's where i saw yeah. the application actually occur and i saw um the success that the clients had and the parents um so yeah that was the initial autism center at central michigan university under dr christy mm. nutkins mm. and also Uh, Mike Dixon was there as well. So, yeah, that happened at Central Michigan and then moved on over to Western Michigan. Right. And Michigan's not that big of a place. Are those those universities far from each other? It's about two hours. Geography at all. Yeah. So, um, anyone from Michigan will usually hold up a hand and show you where they are. So, Central Michigan is right in the middle. Western is on the okay. West Coast, and then I'm from the East Side, which is the Metro Detroit area. So everything is about two gotcha. hours away from each other. Gotcha. Yeah my my uh, sister in law just moved in with us, and and uh, she's from Windsor. Okay. Yep. Ontario, mm-hmm. which which apparently, and this is a, 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 an aside, but I, maybe you can clarify this for me because I still don't understand it. She she's got these t-shirts that say that uh, that she's from Windsor but they 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 say South Detroit on them. <laughs> is that because the geography is so is weird because Ontario sort of digs into Michigan? It's and, right there. And so It's right there. Yeah, when you're yeah. downtown Detroit and um when you're on the boardwalk, you can see Windsor just right across the river. Mm. So it's you And so is Windsor there. south of Detroit? Windsor is more so. Ooh, now we're doing geography skills. Oh, I'm sorry. I I I, I, <laughs> I think Windsor is more east. Like the part where we're able right. to see from Detroit is more east, and Detroit right. is right on the other side of. I believe that's right. Lake Erie. <laughs> sure, sure. Yeah, it's all good. Uh, I, I just uh, uh, it's uh, it uh, it's it's so. I'm I'm heading back that way in in a couple of weeks because I have family in kind of southern Ontario. Um, that I haven't seen since COVID, and uh, I I can never describe where anything is there because the for those that aren't that don't understand sort of Canada's geography, Ontario's got this kind of weird little tail at the bottom mm-hmm. that almost kind of curves into Michigan, and it makes it really confusing because you think you know the states are south of the border, mm-hmm. but I think there's certain parts where 
the states aren't south of the border mm-hmm. um, in that little tip of Ontario. I don't know, I don't know what sort of treaty happened <laughs> back in the day that let us keep that spot, but um, <laughs> um, it's a bit it, well, it'll be it's nice a bit confusing when you go down there. If you go right like right down to Windsor, when you look over, yeah. you'll immediately see the Riverwalk, and that is Detroit. Mm. Okay, mm-hmm. wild, wild, yeah, good stuff. Um, <laughs> Little geography back, lesson. Back to the topic. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so you're you're at. Uh, so it's actually you know, your dissertation probably isn't really a, a lot related to kind of what we're going to be talking today, but about today. But I might as well touch on it because it sounds kind of cool. Um, so you, you you were basically doing this during COVID, right? Yep, right during COVID. <laughs> and but this but but this was probably a sort of. I don't think I realized, I think I had glanced at the dissertation, but I didn't realize it was college students. For some reason, I thought it was younger. Um, the, um, was it, so this was, a, would, the, would this have been an online college program sort of thing? No, so it was a, initially it was an in-person course, but because oh, wow. of um, everything that happened in 2020, that course switched mm-hmm. from in-person to online. So initially, Got my it. dissertation, well, I guess one more step back. The majority of my research interest in clinical work is on school-wide positive behavior support, training and coaching Mm. teachers on evidence-based teaching strategies, and then also looking at equity focus in public schools. So initially, my dissertation was supposed to be using an interdependent group contingency for preschool students with an embedded self-match procedure. Um, okay. And because all the schools closed down and <laughs> the way we even conceptualized teaching um, was completely flipped over with COVID, I pivoted to still wanting to look at student engagement just now in a mm-hmm. remote context. And um, mm. we went through about three different proposals for my dissertation just because everything was changing almost month by month, everything was changing. So after the third proposal, (laughs) the um, one that kind of stuck and landed and provided the, I think, most interesting research question was my dissertation, which was essentially looking at what are the effects of two different active student responding modalities on student engagement and response accuracy in online classes. So for those two modalities, we evaluated response cards, which um, for this instance was just index cards that students could hold up. There were three different colored index cards that corresponded with the multiple choice questions that were displayed on the screen. So that was our one modality. Our other modality was um, permanent products, and we called that the chat condition. So the responses that Mm. students typed in the public chat form. So we used an alternating treatment design to determine which ASR modality produced the most uh, engagement and also on pre and post kind of quizzes before and after each lecture, we measured which modality yielded the most effective responding or um, mm. and what was interesting about that really cool it was very cool because <laughs> what was interesting is that um, even those students pre- even those students preferred the response card conditions 
they actually performed better on the chat conditions. And we have a couple hmm. of hypotheses as to why. So if you, you yeah. know, how many Zoom meetings have you been a part of over the past couple of years, right? So within the chat condition yeah. or within our online platforms, if you respond in the chat condition, everyone can publicly see your answer, right? So mm-hmm. if students responded incorrectly, they then had to go through, the entire group had to go through an error correction procedure. So it was very it was more mm-hmm. salient as to who responded incorrectly within the chat condition as opposed to the response card conditions. At that time, um, WebEx did not have kind of the Brady Bunch gallery screen that wasn't a part of its features. Right. So when an active student, when an OTR was displayed on the screen, you could only see three participants at the top of the screen. So there was a little bit more, um, their responses were hidden more or less as far as who responded correctly versus incorrectly in the chat, sure. in the response card conditions. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so there was, so I guess obviously then there was a lot less feedback. Exactly. That they would have gotten. And then of course, discussion and, and like you said, the error correction piece. Mm-hmm. And so was there any kind of error correction with the multiple choice or? Yeah. So both conditions had error correction. So if a student or mm. if two or more students responded incorrectly, the instructor or the co-instructor represented the OTR, provided the correct answer, and then asked the students to um, respond to the answer. Hmm. And were these programs, these college programs, were they ABA programs or were they just, or what were they? Great question. So it was actually a combination of both. So Western Michigan Mm -hmm. has a collaborative relationship with the special education department. So this course, there were a total of 17 students that were enrolled in the course. About 10 out Mm -hmm. of the 17 students were actually special education teachers. And the other Mm -hmm. seven were students studying or students in the psychology program occurring their BCBA. Hmm, right on. And <clears throat> I'm curious also, uh, I had uh, Dr. Uh, uh, Rosales on mm-hmm. a while back and we were talking about interteaching. Were, were, were these programs using any of that? They were not. No, they were not using interteaching. No. Okay. Um, And that was primarily because we wanted to determine how to actively keep students engaged during synchronous lectures. Mm. So when you're in Mm. an online course, you can look at the screen. I can be oriented towards the screen right now, but I could be on my emails. I could check Facebook. I could be doing anything yep. else outside of attending and looking to looking at the slides. So we wanted Absolutely. to measure for how they are engaging with the lecture content. So um, like we, we talked about the first half of it, which was the two ASR modalities. So the other way yep. that we assess for engagement was we included a secret word at the bottom of various slides throughout each session. And at the end of the session, the students had to submit the word list to the instructor. So that was our proxy for engagement to see if students were attending and actually orienting to the slides or um, were the slides displayed, but they were engaging in off-task behaviors. (laughs) 
That's cool. So, did did both? So it sounds like with that though, like was engagement then affected by the active student responding modalities, or was engagement just because in the end you got to submit the list? Yeah, well, I mean that really takes it back to the initial kind of function of embedding active student responding within instruction. Mm. So rather with college students or with preschool students, active student responding increases student engagement because they have to make an active observable response to the instruction. So we wanted to determine how those, the ASR principles, right? How that technology, Mm -hmm. how that transitions or generalizes over to remote settings. So um, essentially, who knows? Who knows if it was the use of active student responding or the um, engagement prompt words at the bottom of the screen. Now, we did take social validity data from our uh, students to see, you know, which which modality that they prefer and what were their overall thoughts related to using um, these two modalities in the synchronous course. So students, um, <laughs> they actually did not prefer the engagement words, the secret words at the bottom, because they mentioned that it was distracting. Mm. So we hosted a roundtable discussion afterwards, and several of the students mentioned that they found themselves just like scanning the screen to look for the secret word and then looking elsewhere as opposed to actually attending right. to the content on the screen. Right. So even if they got all the secret words, that didn't mean they were necessarily engaged. Exactly. Exactly. But also right. when you think about right. conferences and different continuing education events that we go to, usually engagement mm-hmm. is measured by the secret words that are either displayed on the screen or that are Um, vocally stated by the presenter. So that is a common method for how we assess engagement in professional contexts, but that also begs additional questions as to, is that the most effective way to measure engagement in these uh, professional contexts, in professional settings, but then also Mm. in um, college teaching? Yeah. Well, you know, now now we need someone to do a study on podcasts. (laughs) Uh, because we all seem to use secret words in our podcasts in order for you to get your CEUs. Oh, yeah. um, and it would be quite easy to sort of, you know, um, well, I don't know if it would be easy to sort of fast forward through it and waiting for the secret word. That might be difficult. Because right. you never know uh, when but, you're going to come. But you don't, you mm-hmm. don't. Yeah, yeah. But I have noticed that people use, and I know this, I'm digressing a bit here, people use sort of different forms of secret words. Like some people use really random, like multi-letter password secret words. The next secret word is X, Y, J, Q. And versus where I just sort of pick random words that are, are kind of related to the mm-hmm. topic. Um, um, uh, um, actually, I had, had one episode with uh, uh, Landa Fox, uh, was an early one. She's uh, uh, she's in sexual behavior analysis, and she works primarily in um, 
um, in a few different areas, but she actually has a, a side gig where she works in an adult video store um, uh, because it helps her, uh, you know, engage with with the community and um, and learn more about products because she recommends products for folks with like disabilities and mm-hmm. whatnot. And uh, and she said, you know, one of the she was telling me that one of the important things to do was to uh, um, um, early on, like with children in particular, is to you know, label body parts with their actual names versus like, you know, wee wee and, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, other terms that I won't <laughs> bring up and embarrass myself with, um, you know, call it penis, call it vulva, call it vagina, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And so we thought it might be uh, a, a good prompt for folks uh, if we made the secret words those words so that they had to listen to them and then type them in at the end um, and, 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 and have, a, have a little bit of practice using those secret words. I don't know if that uh, that helped or not, but uh, if you have any secret words you want to use today, please let me know. <laughs> Will do. <laughs> well, we also noticed that with, as, it, as, a, as an alternative to using secret words or as an alternative to using kind of a multiple choice format, the format that actually produced the most uh, accurate responding was fill in the blank. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And was okay. So how how was that measured? Like on, with an online sort of. Yes. Is that was that through the through the protest post test I guess or how, like how did, how did, or, yep. yeah. how'd you do that? That was through the post test. So the um, okay. The pre and post test had the same OTRs that were presented within the lecture, just on a on mm. a post test format, and um, mm-hmm. the the response card condition had a multiple choice format. The chat mm. condition had a fill in the blank format. Oh, I mm-hmm. see, I see, I see. So gotcha. again, I mentioned that students performed more accurately on the chat condition. Now there, are, mm. as we talked about, there are a couple of things that might have you know affected those responses, but um, sure. overall, they performed at least twenty to thirty percent more accurate on the chat fill in the blank questions that were also presented in the pre and post lectures on the exam and on the cumulative final. So that just may be an alternative for you know podcasters or conferences is just use a fill in the blank. So you can say during the... Yeah, no, I love yeah. that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, and now you're at... Uh, uh, and so, so that was that was the dissertation and, uh, you know, definitely, you know, relates to, you know, kind of some of the stuff you're doing, but I, 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 it makes a lot more sense why you kind of went over to that topic because COVID sort of kind of forced you into that box. Exactly, yeah. Um, that was the initial um, topic, but COVID made me pivot to a different format. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad it worked out. Um, what, so your your so school-wide PBS is kind of, is really your gig, and that was another reason why I wanted to bring you on, on the podcast was because I haven't talked to anyone about school-wide PBS at all. Um, uh, it's really... It's really, uh, there's so much out there for school-wide PBS. There's so much, so much research, so much going on. I mean, I know it's been, it's been, uh, you know, something that's been, you know, researched and talked about for, you know, decades. And, um, 
you know, it, it, I mean, it's 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 one of I think it's sort of the uh, maybe wrong, but I, I feel like it's sort of the prime exa primary example of sort of prevention science and implementation mm -hmm. science that that I think, and I think a lot of the, sort of the implementation science folks. I'm trying to find someone to bring on to kind of talk specifically about that. Um, 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 I think a lot of them kind of came out of school-wide PBS um, because that's that that seems to be where you know most of uh, you know most of the evidence around you know uh, large-scale um, prevention science uh, being effective is. What I'm curious, what uh, before we kind of jump into that and 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 your and your work there, I want to know if you could tell me just a little bit about this Juniper Gardens place. I've heard a lot about it, um, but I, I still don't really understand what it is. And and I just have this image of uh, of uh, you know, you know, a school at like a, a botanical park, <laughs> and I and I imagine that's not what it is. But um, um, uh, I'm I'm just, I'm curious, what, what 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 do folks do there? Like, wh why did you want to go work there? What 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 is that place about? Yeah, so Juniper Gardens is affiliated with the University of Kansas in Kansas City, Kansas. Right. And um, the initial reason why I wanted to do my postdoc with Juniper Gardens is simply because of the amount of um, expertise that all the senior scientists have at Juniper Gardens, mm. and specifically the okay. expertise that's aligned with my primary research interest, which is the application of behavior analysis in the public schools. So throughout gotcha. um, the Juniper Gardens experience, pretty much, I've had the opportunity to work with Dr. Charles Greenwood, Dr. Judy, Judith Carta, Dr. Howard Wills, and so many other um, amazing humans and also scientists who are passionate about providing um, quality services and doing some really good research for underserved mm. communities. So Juniper Gardens, okay. I think, has been around for maybe 60 or 60 to 80. Wow. It's been around for a long time. <laughs> long time, A long yeah. time. Okay. And it's, it has a very reputable program. There are, again, just a lot of, there's a lot of good work happening at Juniper Gardens. And I'm really grateful mm. and humbled to have the postdoc and to be able to work underneath these amazing um, mentors. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to know the three secret words and enter them at www.cbiconsultants.com forward slash shop. The first secret word is bias. Hmm. So what is the purpose of like what what's sort of the main purpose of Juniper Gardens? Like what are the, what do they do? Is, is it essentially just a not just it was essentially a, a a university research center or? essentially yes so they are like i said partnered with university of kansas but juniper gardens is its own yep. entity so they have their own director okay. their own executive director um the majority right. of the senior scientists there are um either trained in behavior analysis or behavior analyst and um mm. they are primarily writing uh, federal grants to do research across mm. the entire world, <laughs> to be completely honest. Oh, wow. yeah. So there are, um, for example, Dr. Howard Wills, He his line of research is focused on self-monitoring interventions, specifically iConnect, which is a self-monitoring platform for teachers, uh, well, for students, but teachers are able to access it. 
And um, his research is happening across all 50 states. Um, And he has secured millions of dollars in federal and uh, national grants. So he's just one example of all of the researchers there that are um, really passionate about grant writing as well. And they're they're really good at it. (laughs) They are really good at grant writing. So I'm uh, excited to be able to learn from them and to learn about the processes that are involved within grant writing. That's cool. This is something I'm learning more and more about. So I don't have a PhD and I'm not really familiar with sort of that whole learning process, but um, it, it, it really sounds like, in, in, you know, as, you know, as, as advanced and intense as a PhD is, it's still really just a kind of beginner program of sorts um, in that, in that you have to then go, you do a postdoc and a postdoc is really about starting to learn you know, a lot more of the sort of, all, like you said, all the grant writing stuff and all of the, you know, all of the, you know, the, the different things around publishing and budgeting and writing and all these things, which I would have thought you, you learned in a PhD, but it sounds like there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of things you got to do once you get your PhD to really be a PhD. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and um, like we talked about earlier, school can teach you so much about, yeah, different applications. So I took a grant writing course at Western Michigan. Mm. That was phenomenal. I also did learn a lot. Um, And then at the end of that course, we were challenged to submit a grant as well. And Mm. that was an amazing experience. And then also kind of the next step in that journey is trying to secure larger funded grants with more, with researchers who have an expertise in specific content areas. If you need a methodologist, if you need someone who's really good in uh, technology, Mm. right? So it's you taking those foundational skills that you learned as a graduate student in your PhD program, but then it's kind of taking it to the next Mm. level. And through Juniper Gardens, I'm um, being exposed to what that looks like. And um, it's, it's just exciting to see that there is so many different funding opportunities outside of your, you know, national grants, so your NIH or your um, NSF, like the huge grants, there are also smaller Mm. foundations that you're able to kind of partner with and also able to do some really great work as well. Really cool. Wow. All right. So school-wide PBS. So again, and I think, I think I just haven't gotten anyone on yet because it's so overwhelming you know, uh, the research and when you dive into sort of like a, like a journal, like G- journal of positive behavior interventions or something like that. And, and, you know, it's, you know, it's, uh, or, or just look at the APBS conference, which, you know, is really heavy, heavy school focused, you know, you might find, a, you know, the odd group home presentation here and there or community one, but for the most part, it seems to be really heavy school focus, which I think makes sense because that's, and that's where all the research is. But when I start seeing, I see, oh, there's, you know, we can learn about coaching. We can learn about uh, building teams. We can learn about tier one stuff. We can learn about tier two stuff. We can learn about tier three stuff. We can learn about tier two stuff for this guy. And, 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 it, and it, you know, we can learn about check in, check out. And, and, and they're just, they're, they, they, again, for, I, I don't imagine, you know, parents and students see all this, but for the, for the, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the non-familiar behavior analyst, 
um, there's there, there's there's a whole lot of new jargon um, and a whole lot of you know a whole lot of different directions you can go with with kind of school wide PBS. I'm not going to ask you to explain school wide PBS. I mean, I think you know in, in general it's 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 you know it, it's just large scale organization you know, kind of OBM almost um, 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 uh, and, uh, and 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 it's all about prevention. It, it seems to be sort of the the big focus, and it's not. But and then correct me if I'm wrong anywhere here. It's not sort of specific to sort of disability necessarily. You know, it's it's really about sort of you know increasing desired behavior and reducing undesired behavior in all the students in the school is 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 what I get from it. Is that sort of accurate as just kind of the, the generally what school wide PBS is all about? Yeah, I would honestly um, say that's exactly what it's about and. When I think about school-wide PBIS, I think about um, a systemic way to keep students successfully in the public schools. That's what I think about when I think about PBIS, because it has multiple tiers, like you alluded to. Um, It's just when do we identify which tier the student needs to go to, what supports are available for that tier and for that student. Right on. Okay, so maybe let's just start talking about um, give you know, give some information on kind of what what what's what's your sort of specialty in sort of the the school wide PBIS realm. What, what do you focus on? Yeah, so I primarily focus on tier one, which is those universal mm. classroom wide supports. So when I think of tier okay. one, I think of the physical environment. Where are the materials in the class? Where is the teacher's desk in the class? Hmm. Is being, are things right. labeled? So the actual physical environment, the interpersonal hmm. relationships between the teacher and their support staff, that is a critical component to any successful classroom environment. Are they nice to each other? Do they speak to each other hmm. respectfully? Um, those are key yeah. things that can make or break the, the school year. Um Another component to that tier one, how I conceptualize it at least, is I think what's what's most commonly known, which is our rates of opportunities to respond, behavior specific Mm. praise, um, how we how do we provide um, feedback for incorrect responses. So really looking at Mm. those uh, teaching practices and then Mm. in another area is an equity lens to our tier one supports. So how are teachers Mm. distributing their praise versus reprimands to BIPOC students, so Black, Indigenous people of color versus their white peers in the classroom? Are there any um, disparities Mm. between reprimands between both groups? If so, that just serves as an opportunity for us to provide Mm. some specific and pinpointed coaching. So when I think of, just to summarize, when I think of tier one interventions, I think about it in those four main categories. Hmm. And so, and so that's what you're doing. You're going in there and essentially training teachers on those tier one sort of categories. I am. Yeah. And kind of how to, how to do that piece. Mm -hmm. And, and are, are, do you find... Well, I think there's a, I mean, I mean, you, you, this could go a few different directions, but do you find number one that you're 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 welcomed? Ooh, that's a good question, and it depends. It depends on yeah. the type of referral. 
So for example, if I'm referred to a, to work with a student who is on the last straw, then mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I may or may not be as welcomed because at that point, the student, um, they, the school has exhausted all of their resources, right? The teacher mm-hmm. may be fed up with the student. The parents may be fed up with the teacher. It, it is yeah. um, more or less words may be like a, a hostile or unsettling environment. So in those cases, um, I may not be welcome with open arms. That's okay. <laughs> because I think mm. one of the the most important skills, honestly, to working in the public schools is soft skills and how you actually connect mm-hmm. and collaborate with teachers and seeing them as humans first and teachers second. Mm-hmm. So I would say, mm. um, yeah, in those situations, may not be welcomed. But for other situations, if a um, director, if a special education director is contacting me because they want professional development training on tier one, they are seeking me out, which means that the need is there, at least from the special education director's perspective. So the the feedback, the interventions, the strategies that I provide are more well-received in that context, I think. Um, But also in the other context, too, if I'm able to identify some quick wins and get that student just a little bit successful, then I think that makes an impact as well. It's, uh, the reason I'm asking this question, some of this comes just from personal experience of, of not doing so well. <laughs> uh, but uh, but also, there's this... Uh, teachers, I mean, obviously, are they teach. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of them believe they have a really good education on how to be teachers and, and how to do teaching but then and i don't i am I'm, I'm i'm assuming you you don't come in here sort of you know with with this direct message but we're coming in showing them how to teach better and i feel like there's a a, a real opportunity for polarization there um you know when one come when one who is a trained teacher come is there and then you're coming in who's not a teacher, but apparently you're saying you know how to teach better, um, <laughs> you know, and then and then there's that sort of conflict pieces. Does that occur? Is that a thing? Or is that, you know, do you know, do you know, I know what I'm saying? what you're saying, and I think that I, like, would never take that approach just because no. I would not want anyone to walk into, you know, my home for more or less words and tell me mm-hmm. how things should be ran at my home. So right. when I right. you know, initially meet a teacher, I'm not there to teach them how to teach. I'm there to look at behaviors. And if that behaviors, right. if those behaviors are um, impacted by how we change our instruction, then that's a win. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm. I think it's all about how you, again, how you approach a situation and how you discuss yeah why you're in the classroom and just remaining completely yeah. transparent. So there there are situations yeah, yeah. where I am asked to or referred to work with one specific student. We can get that student very successful. And with that behavior intervention plan, then I'm also coaching and training the teacher, not only on that plan, but how those strategies may help not only that student, but those other two students also in the corner who may be who may be a high flyer, but they haven't quite been identified yet. So it's just kind of right. being providing a more 
this is not behavioral analytic, but a more holistic perspective as to why we're in the classroom and how this behavior impacts another behavior. Right on. And being, and again, and then, and then I think this is another, maybe this is a, a myth or it's just something I'm, I still don't understand, but with school-wide PBS, you know, there's a lot of, as, as I've understood it, at least some of the training that I've had, I've had some, a bit of training in kind of the, in this area because the professors at, I went to the University of British Columbia and the professors there are both come from kind of, you know, University of Oregon and, and a lot of the, a lot of the early kind of PBS stuff. And so a lot of the, the, the ABA program in that, in there is very PBS focused. It's a, the degree is a, you know, that, that degree back there is a, I've never been a teacher, but I've got a master's in special education, <laughs> um, you know, uh, because that was sort of the gear and it was geared towards teachers or, 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 or or teacher BCBAs or or some some early early intervention folks as well, but a lot of a lot of kind of education focus. And so what we learned there was that, and again, I'm, uh, this, this was eight or nine years ago, but uh, was was sort of the process of of sort of creating a kind of school school wide PBS climate, and you know start you know starting with you know the the higher ups and you know getting building that team and getting you know at least eighty percent or so on board and so on and the whole and everything that sort of and all the fidelity measures and all the pieces that are required to sort of you know build that system. Um, does that system need to be in place for you to do this work? 100%. Absolutely. I would say it needs to be in place or else everyone is kind of just doing their own thing. And that is pretty synonymous with, with chaos. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're not coming in. So then you're not coming into a school. So you've, so you've got, you're coming in, you got a, a student who's, you know, got some behavioral issues or whatever, or some sort of target that you want to work on. Is that school always a school that's a that's a school wide PBS school? No. That's what I, that's what I mean. So how do you do? Are you able to do that work without having a school wide PBS framework? And do you have to work with the whole school and get it all set up in in into sort of that school wide PBS framework to do this work? No, you don't. Um, some okay. schools that I've worked with have a PBIS. Some have PBIS framework, but it doesn't necessarily look like they have PBIS and Mm. then some does not or some do not. So um, whether they have PBIS embedded within their system or not, that doesn't necessarily impact my service delivery because as you know, um, we can't only make change to one individual's behavior and expect there to be some type of like ripple effect with change. So at the at its mm. core, I'm at least training and coaching the teacher, the paraprofessional, and the client on that student's behavior intervention plan. Then if the teacher mm. asks for, you know, um, asks for my feedback for another scenario, then I'm able to bridge some of those proactive and reactive strategies for that student with classroom-wide support. So it just it just kind of mm. depends. And initially, um, I think I think your initial question was asking, you know, do I ask teachers, do I tell teachers how to teach? And I said that I, I focus on behaviors. And I think Steven, yeah. Stevenson in 2020 published a very good hmm. article on some of the gaps within teacher preparation programs. And I, I believe in that mm-hmm. article he discussed or they discussed that 
um, I think only 28% of teacher preparatory programs require a behavior management course. So through that, (laughs) it shows me that, you know, teachers can, they have teach, they have, they can teach, they have fundamental knowledge and a variety of curricula that I'm not exposed to as a behavior analyst, but when it comes to identifying Uh the function of a behavior and um, how behaviors are interconnected in a classroom-wide setting, I think there is there is value to support in that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, okay, and going on, fo- moving into kind of the the other piece of your work in schools around equity, um, and 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 again, I think you you you've done a bit of writing on that um, more in uh, in in a te- in a couple of textbooks that I. I don't own, um, and, and wasn't able to download. Um, so I, I don't have any articles to reference, but, um, uh, maybe you've touched on it a bit already, kind of what, what your, what, 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 what your role is there. And I mean, it makes sense. You're looking, basically looking at sort of those, those behaviors, I think more so that teachers are engaging in that may be, you know, uh, may, may, may have some bias or whatever, or, or towards others. Um, what I guess first off, you know, I, I'm not asking this because I, I don't believe there's one, but just more to for the information of it. Um, what what are sort of the issues in schools around equity? Yeah, good question. So I would say the primary issue with equity in public schools is that black students, Latinx students, students of color are being disproportionately expelled and suspended from the schools based on um, them engaging in, if not similar behaviors as their white peers, sometimes the exact same behaviors as their white peers, but the discipline policies are um, not favorable towards BIPOC students. Hmm. Yeah, actually, I think I did, now that I'm, now that I, I think I did read something. I, there was one article on the Google Scholar that maybe was a sort of a preprint that was maybe going to be into one of those textbooks. And I remember reading a little bit on that, and, and there was one line that just blew my mind around sort of the, the like th- this was happening with like six-year-olds, you know, or some like six-year-olds getting expelled and suspended at like, was it like four times the raid or something like that of of the white kids like like i just don't imagine six-year-olds getting expelled or suspended period mm-hmm. you know um from anywhere um you know um um that's just that seems just crazy it's alarming making. right it's alarming yeah. and um you know i think i think that given the setting Right. So a daycare, a private daycare setting versus like a preschool, um, there may be some um, some avenues that allow these disproportionalities to occur just because preschool is not required federally. Um, Daycare Mm -hmm. is not required federally. so hmm. these settings may have a little bit more leeway to say, oh, this this kid is a problem kid. He needs to be expelled or suspended, um, especially hmm. early on. Now, when we talk about 
mm-hmm. elementary school and middle school and high school, I mean, those trends are still very present. Um, and the process for getting for a student being expelled and suspended is maybe a little bit more intricate or interconnected, bringing in the mm-hmm. parents. But the, the trend starting from pre-K to college um, or to high school, let me say, uh, that trend is has been increasing over the past 25 to 30 years. Hmm. How do you, how, this, I, I can see why it's, why it's, you know, uh, important work and, and, and needs to be done, but how, how do you do it? I, um, uh, not, not so much like how do you, you personally do it, but just how does one address these issues? Um, like I imagine initially, I don't imagine there probably are some, are some teachers that, you know, they're, they're, they're well aware of their sort of, um, um, you know, bias and racist choices that they're making. And generally speaking, I don't want, you know, black kids in my classroom ever. And, you know, but I don't imagine that's, that's the common case. I imagine, I, I would guess it's more often folks don't really realize they're doing it or um, what's that look like? What does it look like when you like, when you, when you come into a classroom and you know, there's, well, first off, I guess maybe step back a bit. How do you, how do you end up in the classroom in the first place to deal with that issue? Is that through a referral that maybe there's a, a black child who's having a lot of problems. So you get the referral for that kid and then you come in and discover that there's a whole lot of equity things going on or is there, or, you know, how, how does this all start? Well, that's how it initially started, to be honest. So through um, my grant-based work in my PhD program, we were actually mm. challenged with going into public schools to look at our teaching practices. So when I say teaching practices, I mean our rates of opportunities to respond, praise, reprimands, broadly speaking. Mm. And then we were also yep. challenged to look at um, equity Look at the look at these students with an equitable lens to determine if teachers mm. are um, responding disproportionately to BIPOC students compared to their white peers. So, mm. and you know, just to be completely transparent, I was not mm-hmm. made very aware of the severity of the trends <laughs> until I was actually mm. tasked with analyzing behavior in that way. So clearly I'm a, I'm wow. a black woman. <laughs> um, so I can mm-hmm. see certain things as far as um, discrimination and microaggressions. Um, but mm-hmm. typically when I would work in the public schools, I would be there to work with the teacher on teaching practices, or I would be in the classroom mm-hmm. to focus on doing a functional behavior assessment. Um, so mm-hmm. within those contexts, I was never explicitly challenged to look at race with the primary as the primary variable and after Mm. you know our grant-based work and it's still going now which is exciting to to see but after that experience you can't unsee it once you're first exposed to it once you take data on it once you see uh Mm -hmm. kind of reoccurring trends not only in one classroom setting but across multiple classroom settings now i can't unsee it and um, mm. you asked, how do I do it? You know, I, I, I feel like. The second secret word is restorative. If I don't do it, who will? Like, I, I, I have to, um, not only because being kicked out of school 
has so many long-term and short-term effects for these students. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm also just very passionate about seeing them succeed in the educational environment. I believe that school, mm-hmm. it, that everyone has a right to free, appropriate public education, no matter their gender, their mm-hmm. race, their diagnoses, anything. Um, and yeah. I, I want to be the change agent in ensuring that students of all demographics have access to free appropriate public education. That's awesome. And that's not, that's not exactly what I meant. I, I, I definitely get your motivation and, uh, and passion and, and, uh, and, uh, and drive to do this work. What I was wondering was actually, how do you do it? So how do you, how do you approach a teacher who's clearly, you know, um, um, you know, got some bias and, and, and making some choices here that are, that are, you know, that are, that are, that are, that are clearly, you know, discriminatory. Uh, like, what's that, what's that look like? What's that process? Yeah. Look like? So, I mean, that process, like I was sharing, it looks like me taking data, like objective data mm. on the teacher's mm. praise and reprimand specifically towards BIPOC students versus their white mm-hmm. peers. And at the right. end of maybe a 10 to 15 minute observation, if I'm observing during large group or a small group time period, any time period th- throughout the day, um, yeah. then in my role, I would go over and just let's talk about the data. OK, so during large group, mm-hmm. I saw that you provided 15 opportunities to respond. Um, six of those you provided behavior specific praise. We provided six rec- reprimands and. Um, the majority of those reprimands were towards Billy, Johnny, and Daquan. So mm. I would like to talk about, you know, how we can respond more equitably for this group of students, right? So remember our teaching practices mm-hmm. and remember our explicit instruction. When Daquan mm. flipped over the chair, we can state the behavior that you want to see as opposed to the reprimand. So then we can tie it back into mm. the overall tier one training and coaching practices. So it's really just remaining objective because the data are what they yeah. are. Um, and I'm not saying yeah. that you are, I'm not walking over to the teacher and saying, you're being racist towards Daquan and, and Johnny. Right. Like, no, that's not what yeah. I'm saying. I'm just, you know, telling it what it is, speaking about the data yeah. and then tying it back to our tier one coaching strategies. That's good. I like that. And, and the, yeah, because I, I didn't imagine you were going and telling them they were being racist, but I was trying to figure out what you were telling them. And so, how, how do how have you found teachers the teacher response? So when the teacher realizes that you know you know that you know Daquan is getting you know thirteen reprimands and and, and Mike's getting two, um, and and the behavior is and and, and I really like and I think I read this too. I, I really like that the. the, the 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 behaviors are almost indistinguish indistinguishable from each other. Like you know, you know, let's call it let's call it clapping when they're not supposed to. The clap looks exactly the same for Daquan and and Mike, and yet Daquan's getting in a whole bunch more mm-hmm. trouble than Mike. How does the how does the teacher sort of respond to that realization? What what sort of this is more anecdotal, like, but what sort of experiences have you had sort of with teachers kind of you know now discovering the facts yeah so that actually happened (laughs) and that was Mm. my first aha moment as to why the grant challenged us to take data on those specific aims i was working in Mm. it was a 
I believe a kindergarten or a first grade classroom. There were two students, Mm. one uh, presented as being black, the other one presented as being white. Both students flipped over chairs. One student got Mm. sent home for the rest of the week. The other student Mm. got the sensory toys, pats on the back, and their calm down area. For the exact same behavior within like 30 seconds of each other. So that actually happened. (laughs) And um, during that experience, I think first, first thing that I had to do was recognize the emotions that I had in that moment. Um, Because I, I, I saw what happened. I immediately felt away (laughs) and my colleague Mm -hmm. also, we were kind of emoting emotionally um, discreetly, but we both noticed that we gave each other a look mm-hmm. and then we, you know, just got back to continuing to mm-hmm. take data. So mm-hmm. during mm-hmm. that situation, that day, we did not provide feedback because as a supervisor in that context, I think it was appropriate to go home, think about what happened, think about how we want to address mm-hmm. that situation mm-hmm. and then come back for our um, weekly check-in. So during that Mm -hmm. weekly check-in, we talked about that. And the initial teacher's response was um, she mentioned that the reason why the the Black student got sent home was because he was on a, like, um, they call it a a crisis management plan. So he didn't Mm -hmm. have an IEP, but he had a crisis management plan. And that behavior, mm. as identified by the crisis management plan, warranted the student being kicked out. And mm. while that is very well true, because she shared the plan with me, um, it is explicitly written in the plan. There was also, again, yeah. that noticeable, very salient difference between how even the teachers responded to the students for engaging in the same behavior. So then we had, then we were able to, because she shared the crisis management plan with us, we were then able to talk about um, when using the crisis crisis management plan, how do we ensure that we're setting the student up for success by kind of exhausting those proactive and reactive strategies listed in the crisis management plan first, before Uh we initially, before we go to Um, kind of the last straw, which is the student being expelled or suspended. So that Mm -hmm, was a mm -hmm. very good conversation, not only with the teacher, but also the the site supervisor (laughs) for um, if we're going to use a crisis management plan, we need to use all of the proactive strategies. Um, And again, we're in that classroom context to coach and train you on those strategies um, and not necessarily jump to the reactive strategies without kind of setting the student up for success. So what, so the, so the black student had this crisis management plan in place, which, you know, said, send him home if he flips a chair or whatnot. Um, which that, I think that in and of itself is a systemic issue, right? So this is the systemic piece, right? That, well, sure, there's a plan, but why is that plan there? Mm-hmm. You know, why does he have a plan that sends him home? What, what, so what did the other student have in place? Did he have an IEP that said when he gets upset, give him sensory toys and pat him on the so back? So that student was fairly new to the classroom. So I think that student had mm. initially transitioned in a classroom maybe, maybe mm. three weeks before my team got there. 
Um, So the reason why that student or it was explained to us that they responded in that way for that student because he was still trying to learn the classroom dynamics. And also um, he may Mm. have been modeling inappropriate behavior from the black student when actually the white student engaged in the behavior first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And so I'm curious what, so what changes what we're putting into place then after yeah that. so like i mentioned we had a lot of conversations with not only the teacher the parapro and also the site supervisor because we weren't aware that this this student had a crisis management plan that wasn't communicated with my team mm. and um, prior to service provision if the student does have a crisis management plan or an iep um, it's a part of our processes that we get a copy of that so we can see what's actually happening. And then when we do our first classroom mm-hmm. observation, we can take data on what's actually happening in the classroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the first things mm-hmm. first was getting access to the plan. And then, like I mentioned, talking about um, the proactive strategies in there. Some of the proactive strategies were actually inadvertently reinforcing the the problem behavior. So having conversations about the function of behavior and this student's behavior was maintained by access to attention. So clearly as soon as the student flipped the chair, the teachers came over there. He, um, you know, he got the physical attention as far as like, well, like pats on the shoulder, right? Like, why'd you do that? That shouldn't happen. Um, you're going to have to go home. So they got verbal and physical attention. Um, so yeah, essentially just a lot of conversations. For me, more, more pinpointed coaching and training related to those proactive strategies, mm. but then also removing some of the um, strategies and interventions that are reinforcing the problem behavior. <laughs> mm, gotcha. And did it work? It did. So that student actually <laughs> was successful, and that is <laughs> the highlight at the at the end of the story. He actually did yeah. really well. And um, from the last thing I heard after we kind of concluded our service provision, he did end up um, like staying in the school for the rest of the school year. Oh, amazing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, good stuff. Ending on a good note. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's really, really cool about So where our agency is just starting to kind of get into, we're a PBS agency, but like a community Related, we work mostly with with families and then group homes and day brokers and that that sort of thing. Um, and um, uh, and I know there's a lot of really cool stuff happening in the U.S. around sort of systems work in in those contexts. In Canada, not so much. And so we're we're just kind of starting to get into this. But I just love how, and this is just a comment, really. I just love how these tier one strategies, which are all real simple things, you know, you know, whether it's, you know, like you said, labeling something or moving something or, you know, slightly altering the practice towards other kids or increasing or decreasing the frequency of stuff you're already doing. Um, You know, really simple strategies. They don't, they don't have, they don't need like a a six page write up on how to do it. Um, Just the amazing amount of, the amazing effect that these, these tier one preventative strategies have so that you don't need those more intensive kinds of supports. Um, is, is that something, is that kind of the, 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 the reason why you kind of like the tier one stuff? Because it's simple. Because it's simple, but because it's also, 
it think has the biggest impact. I think impact. just because it has the biggest impact and it's stuff that you do for everybody. Yeah. You know, and so there's no sort of, you know, um, um, you know, it just, it just, it, the, the, it's, I guess it's just the prevention piece. If we do these sort of basic things, you know, of treat people with respect and build some relationships and, and listen and, 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 and just be, you know, aware of some basic things, you're going to see a lot less problems in any context. Mm-hmm. 100%. You know, I, I just think that. And I just love, that's what I just love about tier one stuff, you know, and, and often we, we get folks wanting this tier three or they don't call it that. They just want intensive, intensive you know, supports. you know, F, intensive supports, mm-hmm. not realizing that if, if those tier one supports were in place, that's probably really all they needed in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, um, so yes, that is the reason, you know, why, why I'm into it. And then also Mm -hmm. I like how creative we can be with the tier one support. So Hmm. outside of, Hmm. you know, be respectful, be kind, you know, those kind of generic phrases, each classroom is different. Each student, each, each group is different. So there may be one Hmm. teacher who is struggling with just transitions between activities, right? So we can get creative with Mm -hmm. how we, you know, transition students, if we're doing like a secret, a secret game during transitions, or if they have to match to sample a car to the color, to the carpet, you know, we can get very creative Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. our tier one interventions. And um, Hmm. I think that just makes it, it always keeps it fun for me, at least, because I'm allowed to kind of give a true baseline of the practices in a classroom and then determine what would be most effective for this dynamic. Yeah. Yeah, no, the creativity piece is cool. I like that. Right on. <laughs> um, just thinking about kind of the time, and, and I did mention that other article in, in the beginning, um, and I think it's a good segue because we've been talking about kind of, you know, equity in, in schools. We've been talking about, you know, this last student example of sort of that crisis management piece, um, and it kind of flows nicely into the, uh, this uh, this this other article that you published, um, not so much about school settings per se, uh, but um, um, but certainly everything written in this article could happen in a school setting. Um, um, it uh, this is quite the article. This is this 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 is a doozy in 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 so many good ways because I think it's a real. A real wake-up call, and 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 just the, the way it's written is 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 so compelling, uh, you know. And and I won't read it all. It 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 is available um, um, online. It was behavior behavior analysis and practice. This was March 2021. So if folks out there are listening and don't realize it now, the BACB gives you access to that journal now, um, along with. Uh, five or six other new ones that they didn't have on there before. Mm-hmm. And I believe, I believe it's only the current year that they don't give you access to. So this is last year. So you should be able to get this one through that, um, through that method, but you're going to read the first, you know, paragraph or so, and it's going to read like, and, and basically looking at the, and you're going to see the title of the article on the uncanny similarities between police brutality and client mistreatment. And you're going to read that first section and you're going to go, okay, you know, this is another story of another, you know, another, you know, black individual who was, you know, 
you know, taken into custody by police and, 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 and treated horribly and killed for, for no, for no good reason. And then you read the next paragraph and discover that it's, it, this is not a, a police story. This is, this is a story about a, a, a young black man, uh, a boy, a young black boy who, who 16. was essentially 16 years old, who was restrained. And I think there's, there's, there's definitely been a similar story. Anyone who's taken like a, anyone sort of who's a behavior analyst has probably taken some sort of crisis management course at some point, you know, whether it be, you know, nonviolent crisis intervention or, you know, QBS or PCMA, there's so many of them out there, um, and and most of those courses will have an example of a of a, of a child in care that died of a restraint, usually restraint asphyxia, uh, and the reasoning why you have th- these trainings, um, you know, to sort of uh, address that kind of stuff. But I think just because of the timing of 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 this article, but also the timing of this incident, this incident occurred. Uh, almost to the day a month before George George Floyd was murdered with so many similarities in the, in the story um, and it's just a really great article because I think I, th- I think and I think we need more articles written like this that 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 are are, are, are less sort of jargony and more compelling, uh, and this is the most one. I think this is one of the most compelling articles that I've ever read in in, in a, as a behavior analyst in the field. Um, uh, there's been a couple others, um, um, and uh, but but I uh, you know I, 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 there was one. Natalie Byrus did one. Natalia Byrus did one that was really nice and it had had a similar awesome title um, um, uh, uh, related to sort of the patriarchy in our field. Um, and that was another really good one that really was really drew me in. But um, so great article. I just wanted to say, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and highly recommend reading it. Um, um, so, Cause it's just some really powerful stuff in here. So maybe uh, you can just uh, tell us uh, init- uh, first off kind of why, why you got involved in this, in this project. Yeah, so um, Dr. Cody Morris, who is currently the program director at Salve Regina University, we were also lab mates at Western Michigan University. So um, during this time, Dr. Morris called me and he was like, Nicole, <laughs> did you did you see that story about Cornelius and Kalamazoo? And I was like, no, what happened? And he immediately sent me over the story. Um I naturally started to cry afterwards because I could not believe it. And then we had maybe two to three Zoom calls where we were both just talking about how could this happen at a direct care, under the care of direct staff. And um, Mm -hmm. if this is the one instance that has been documented, how many more instances have not been documented? What are we doing as a field to prevent these instances from occurring? Um, me in public schools, the use of restraint and seclusion. And he, at that time, he primarily worked in group home settings. So um, looking Mm -hmm. at, you know, in our respective settings, what are we doing? What policies are in place? What conversations are we having, not only as a field, but also within our individual communities related to how we respond to challenging behaviors? And in Cornelius's example, 
his behavior, he threw a sandwich. Um, so did throwing a sandwich warrant the officers, um, I'm sorry, not the officers, the direct care staff, did that warrant mm-hmm. them coming over and um, pushing him, pushing him down to the floor, restraining him, and then ultimately leading to his death? Absolutely not. Um, are there other stories that have probably occurred just like this? I 100% believe that is the case. So mm-hmm. we talked about it and we talked about it and he he initially pioneered it. He said, we have to write this paper up. We have to write this up and we have to submit this because this, like, I don't want another story like this to happen. And it's very close to behavior analysis. So there were no direct, there were no behavior analysts on staff. Um, but that mm-hmm, setting mm-hmm. could have very well been any group home setting. It could have been any yep. public school setting. Um, so, yeah, we wrote that paper up in Honestly, I think two weeks. That was the quickest I've ever <laughs> collaborated and worked on a manuscript together because Dr. Morris, um, you know, he was very adamant. And I'm like, right there with him. Like, yes, we need to work on this day and night. Um, so we got it out in, I think, maybe two or three weeks and submitted it for publication. Wow. But, you know, yes, it, it's a very cool output to see that the pub- the paper is published. Um but the mm-hmm. the discussions that him and I had just as colleagues, as peers um, related to, OK, so what are we going to do? Like, what are we actually going to do outside of submitting the paper mm-hmm. for publication? But like, what changes can we make in our own individual systems to ensure that this never happens again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I maybe you can talk a little bit about um, um, first why why police brutality why compare it to police brutality let me start yeah i think because the parallels not only given the time period right you mentioned that this was a month Mm -hmm. uh pre-george floyd social justice movement Mm -hmm. so not only was Mm -hmm. the time period um and also we all were at home Right. So we were all home. Everyone was kind of sitting with themselves. Everyone, I hope, Mm -hmm. was doing the work related to evaluating if they do have any type of biases or um, what that may look like in their setting. But the parallels Mm -hmm. (laughs) to how and I'm not sure if you've seen the video. There is a video that has displayed this as well. Um, But there is no other person or no other profession to compare their response to this behavior outside of the police. So your question is, why police? Mm. My my answer is, why not? Mm -hmm. So sorry, there's a video of that particular incident? Yes. Wow. Yeah, the security cameras, cameras, excuse me, caught the entire incident online. Um, Again, that may be a trigger warning because I definitely, um, that was emotional mm. to see, especially again, given the time and just, that could be my brother, <laughs> that could be a client, you know, that could be a friend. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was just hard to watch. And, but I'm thankful that I had not only uh, Cody to kind of talk through this situation with and for us to kind of mm-hmm. think at a professional level, what we're going to do, but also my my chosen community and family too, to talk about, 
these instances and um, how the system is just not really built for for black people and people of color to succeed. No. I know this article is about sort of how to avoid this from happening again, but do you know if there were any consequences for those? I believe the, I believe all the staff, if not all of the staff, a couple of the staff were terminated. Mm. Um, But no legal. I don't know if there's been any legal action. I'm not sure if there's been Mm. any, additional hands-on training right and how do we actually Mm -hmm. de-escalate a situation so that's something that we talked about in this manuscript is our ineffective intervention so in no Mm -hmm. way should throwing a sandwich lead to um someone being restrained and being killed at a residential facility so what do our training practices look like and how are we training staff members to identify those precursor behaviors and jump in with those antecedent and or proactive interventions yeah because i presume this place is probably still open i believe Um, so uh, and uh yeah wow well that's definitely uh something i can google later um um so Definitely why not compare to, to, to police. And I think the other really good reason for doing, comparing it to, to anyone in particular, to comparing it to another group is because of the lack of data we have on sort of our own field for these sorts of things. Like, you know, and I think because we know there's a little more research now on sort of, you know, on stats around police brutality and, you know, and those sorts of pieces. And we just don't really have a lot of that information Um and, and you know, from from our sector, you know that that that's just it's it, it's not you know the the public doesn't demand to know you know what's happening in in group homes or in in treatment centers and and that sort of thing unless maybe one of these videos gets gets played or or whatnot. Let's let let let's dig into sort of you know you know what we can do about it and what 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 are those some of those issues. So you you outlined. Um, several risk factors um, um, let's talk about those a bit what, what do we have um so the first one I think we were just talking about it was the lack of transparency and specifically mm. related to training um, so we kind of already mm. answered that but just to reiterate what we can do <laughs> is take yeah. a really good look at our system our organization And specifically, if you work directly for me, like in public schools or people that work in group home settings, whatever setting you work in, um, look at the training systems that you have in place. And I think not only, you know, I think not only is important to look at the training system, but it also is important for people to take some type of DEI related training. So that can Mm. look like um what are microaggressions what does discrimination look like Mm. what does implicit bias look like because even now in 2022 Mm -hmm. people are still not aware of these terms they are not aware of how Mm -hmm. that may present across the different organizations some people may still be saying like we don't see color and we know that that inherently Mm -hmm. is more detrimental than it is um that it actually has a positive effect So I think not only, yes, looking at our training system, but also 
having some embedded contingencies for people to take different DEI trainings from BIPOC experts and then also embed that within the training and overall at, at the org level. Mm-hmm. So that is something that we can do. <laughs> is it a little effortful? Yeah. Yes, but will it have a significant impact on the clients that you serve, the environment that you're creating for your staff, um, the parents and the yeah. uh, external stakeholders? 100. Mm-hmm. percent So definitely that transparency piece is is huge. Mm-hmm. Um, and. You, I think they t- you talk, talked a little bit in the, in the article about, um, um, you know, police are now, you may be using like body cams and those sorts of things mm-hmm. in terms of accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I often wonder if, if things like that should be in place in, in group homes, but then the whole idea of putting a camera in a group home you know, there's a whole lot of privacy and issues and, and problems there as mm-hmm. well. Um, you know, I, you know, I don't know. It's, I don't, how do you, like, how do you do accountability in a group home kind of setting when, 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 uh, you know, and I guess maybe that is those systems is, is, is the training of the, you know, the leadership and the training of the managers mm-hmm. and the training of the supervisors to be able to kind of go in there and, and uh, you know, regularly and watch for these sorts of things. I guess it's, it's I guess part of it is maybe to your point of more DEI and training and bias training and whatnot is that folks don't even know to watch for this stuff exactly or what to watch for exactly. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. I think you hit the nail right on the head with that. So they first have to know <laughs> that um, this may occur. I may engage in these behaviors. This my peer may engage in this behavior in this setting. And then what? So the next step. So after we leave the identification stage, after we leave the training, Mm -hmm. right, we then have to go into the performance Mm -hmm. management. And I think that is the part where, um, you know, there may not be a lot of resources for that or that um, Mm -hmm. maybe before 2020, that may not have been a primary area that additional funding was going Mm -hmm. towards. So I think that is an area is... Yes, we acknowledge we have the conversations, but also the work and the performance management to ensure mm-hmm. that these instances never occur again. When we talk about mm-hmm. transparency and specifically in the article, we were more so discussing that, you know, how do people alter their behavior when a stakeholder may come on site, right? So if a parent is coming to do a school shadow visit, and if the teacher is made aware that the parent is coming to do a school shadow visit, it's more than likely that that teacher is going to engage in some different behaviors, um, whether for the good or for the bad, right? Just engage in different behaviors simply because they are aware that that person is coming on site. And by them being made aware of that, that then may impact some of that transparency as to what's actually happening in the school setting. Yep. And that can that's universal to every setting. Um, so yep. I think, you know, there's value in just doing drop in visits or now with technology. Yes. Um, a lot of schools actually have cameras <laughs> in the classrooms, um, especially in like mm. daycare settings and um, those pre-K settings. Teachers are they have apps that they send videos and, and photos to the parents throughout the entire day. So there are ways that mm-hmm. we can get creative with. 
um, transparent and really a, a, a clear observation to determine what's happening in the prospective settings. So I think that's definitely an avenue. In the other area, you are. Go ahead. Sorry, just you. You just really the drop-in thing. I think is is so brilliant. I mean, it just makes me think about. Um, um, so one one thing that a lot of our our community living and that's sort of the term we use up here for group homes and day programs and whatnot um, agencies is they require some sort of accreditation, mm-hmm. um, uh, usually from I think the most rigorous one that we have available up in Canada um, uh, is CARF. I'm familiar with CARF, the Commission on Accreditation of Rehabilitation Facilities, I think they're called. And they're international, and they, they have a surveyor that goes around and essentially audits everything they do and interviews clients, interviews staff, interviews managers, interviews families, and, and really you know, you know, nails things down. Problem is, is it's all planned, right? And so... I, I worked in several agencies where, where our CARF survey is coming up in, in you know in a month. Um, um, let's get ready, and so we go back through all our files, make sure they're all right. We 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 co- we, we coach our staff, we coach our clients, mm-hmm. and we essentially paint this picture yep. of what of what things are like mm-hmm. here. We get this wonderful three year accreditation, gold star. You're awesome, and then the next day. Business back. The transparency and accountability is is back, and and I think that drop in piece is just so powerful. And I really may, think maybe these accreditation facilities need to have sort of an ongoing. I'm going to show up out of nowhere and make sure that you know this is for real. Mm-hmm. So I just really like that point um, of, of dropping in um, versus planning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, I mean, it's and it's natural for us to do that, right? Um, like if I know mm-hmm. that someone's coming, I'm going to be on my best behavior. If I know that my supervisor is here, I'm yep. going to, you know, provide all the praise and all the things. Right. So we all yep. do it. Yeah. Um, there also is value in getting a, a, a true observation of what is occurring mm-hmm. in the particular setting. Yeah. I cut you off. You were going to say a second piece as well. Um, uh, The second piece that was not made aware to me prior to writing this paper was the warrior mentality. I never heard Mm. of the the language warrior mentality, but after I read kind of the definition of it, it very much well um, is something that I've seen like almost in every setting. So let's see. Um, for warrior mentality, I don't think I have the the paper right now, but it's. I, I've got it. I've got it right in front of me here. So, um, just on, on if, if this is what you're looking for. So, uh, the term warrior mentality is derived from the concept of warrior cop, and that references that Stephen's article you were talking mm-hmm. about. Uh, a warrior cop is a police officer who relishes the dangerous aspects of their job and adopts the mentality of a warrior by embracing and glorifying physical altercations. Mm-hmm. Now, how many times have you been in maybe an autism center where a client was engaging in severe challenging behavior, um, like self-injurious behavior, the, and the therapist may have gotten 
um, injured or they may have been a champ. They may have implemented the procedure according to how it's written, right? So they, they did their job. Um, but how people responded to that therapist and is kind of like that warrior, that warrior mentality. So, yep, like, give me the mm-hmm. tough kids or... Yeah, he gets all the high quality, that therapist may receive all the high quality praise for how they followed through with that demand. And um, the next time he's going to get the challenging case, right? So by supervisors or teachers, um, whomever engaging in like reinforcing those behaviors, that then is kind of shaping up this concept of the war mentality or teachers that work or behavior analysts that work in public schools. If... um, a client or if a student is at crisis management, you know, the behavior analysts typically come down into the classroom to mitigate or help the student calm down and get back to a neutral state. But it's possible that through them only being kind of contacted for those crises time periods is that they're then kind of embeddingly I'm sorry, not embeddingly, that's actually not even a word, that they are inherently reinforcing that concept of warrior mentality. And it was, it was, my mind was completely blown when I saw that there was actually a definition that defined what I've seen in practice, what I've seen in large scale organizations, small organizations, and all of the above. Totally. Uh, and again, this this one really, I don't know if trigger is the right word, but um, was a, a super wake up call for me. So I, 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 I told you previously just a bit about that first company I worked with and the problems that were there. What I didn't say was that I was totally part of those problems. You know, um, you know, I, I certainly wasn't doing the examples that I shared, but, you know, I 100 percent had warrior mentality all through that job into my time as a group home manager um, and pretty much most of the direct care work I did, I got hit a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, you, you, you name the aggressive, aggressive sort of behavior that was enacted on me. And I, I had those experiences over and over again. I would be the, the fellow that would stand in front of the other staff and take it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I felt I felt cool. I felt empowered. I felt like a superstar. I'm the guy that will protect the staff from, from getting mm-hmm. hit because I'm the guy that can take it. Um, um, and, uh, and eventually, yeah, I did, I did advocate to give, give me the tough cases. You I know? think we all have. Because I don't, I, because I, yeah. yeah. And, 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 and I can really see how that, you know, in hindsight, you know, even, and then even the gear, like we talk about comparing sort of excessive police gear and, you know, the full riot gear for, you know, you know, particular thinking about sort of, um, you know, things like black lives matter, but other, other protests throughout their peaceful protests that, 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 you know, black folk have, and other folks of minority populations have conducted throughout the decades and centuries. And yet, they're confronted by, you know, a SWAT team, you know, that looks like they're going into, you know, um, you know, kill a terrorist or something, you know, um, uh, the gear that they're wearing. But I've seen that similar gear in these residential settings. I, w- I was worked in a program recently where they had a shield yep. um, that was made of foam. And, and I can imagine, you know, especially for, you know, 
folks that are, you know, folks that watch a little too much Game of Thrones, you know, or whatever, you know, could could start could start to sort of embody this personality of being, you know, cool and super and and mm-hmm. awesome, and that can totally lead to, you know, overdoing it in these physical altercations, over restraining and over, you know, forcing. One hundred percent. Yeah, I've seen excessive gear with students that were three years old. <laughs> yes like arm arm um kind of like an arm glove arm glove whoa yeah those, those kevlar armbands and everyone things. has yeah. to excuse and, uh... me it's, <laughs> it's friday and i'm like making a words at this point but yeah the arm <laughs> gloves hats glasses yeah. turtlenecks yeah. and yeah. the client is three yeah and they may engage yeah. in like some head banking behavior let's talk about excessive yeah. gear and what that message yeah. is displaying to the other staff members there, to the other clients, and then ultimately to the parents too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And anyone, anyone just walking by, like the the stigma that it creates for that child initially is now going to be with him or her for the rest of their lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So the warrior mentality. So that's just really something to be aware of. Um, and... How do you address, is, is there a way to address that? Like, is, again, is that, is that a, again, just a sort of a, a, a data collection type approach or, or, or? Yeah, you know, I'm a big systems person. So I think everything is, is brought back to the system. So as the, yeah. whether CEO, um, the supervisor, the director, whatever the title is, I think it's critical for those individuals to, have these components not only in this manuscript but specifically Mm -hmm. for this manuscript to have these components a part of their overall like audit company audit supervision Mm -hmm. audit um what does this practice look like in my organization Mm -hmm. so i think that needs Mm -hmm. to be embedded within the system and if it's not in the system if there are any contingencies to um kind of reinforce those behaviors or to ensure that those behaviors actually occur then we're going to, it's going to be 20, 2044, and we're going to have the same exact conversation that we're having now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 100%. And there were a couple other f- risk factors you talked about. What else do we have? I think the last one is racial biases, which we've, we've chatted about, right. you know, just identifying, um, you know, what does implicit and explicit bias look like? And notice, acknowledging mm-hmm. that we all engage in these behaviors, whether um, consciously mm-hmm. or unconsciously, right? We all have some mm-hmm. type of mm-hmm. prejudices against um, certain groups, certain colors, certain, you know, fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. But it's about the behaviors that we engage in that has the, the biggest impact. So um, specifically in mm-hmm. this context, you know, what racial biases did those direct care staff have towards Cornelius were they did they yeah. initially engage in that severe level of physical restraint because of his um physical demeanor right um mm-hmm, if mm-hmm, so that mm-hmm. warrants further conversation you know so it's it's yeah. it's individuals doing the work it's companies reinforcing the reinforcing or correcting you know behaviors that do not align with the work 
And it's making that a mm-hmm. part of the company policies and the company culture. You also referenced in that in that section, um, you kind of referenced sort of three variables related to racial bias. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, I think, and I think this, this, I think we're starting to see a little more of this. One was related to sort of just the lack of research, the research that is seems to be mostly, including mostly white participants. So, and, and sort of, and, and how, and, and how that really can't be generalized to some of these other cultural cultures, cultures. <laughs> Fridays for me. Right. <laughs> um, and, and I think we are starting to see more research coming out around cultural and idiosyncratic variables for different populations. Um, uh, at least when it comes to sort of autism treatment, which I think has, has been good. Um, but there was a couple others that, um, that, uh, that you mentioned as well. One was sort of a lack of diversity among the direct care workforce. I'm hoping some of, you know, the post George Floyd, um, learning for folks. And I think this is where that DEI kind of, uh, consultation piece is really important for agencies to, it's not only training on microaggressions and bias, but it's also, you know, systemic training around hiring and HR practices and bringing in, you know, you know, uh, you know, um, folks, I mean, I think, what is it? There was a stat here. You were kind of, we don't have stats on direct care staff, but you were comparing it to sort of the, the BACB stats and what was it? Uh, 71% of BCBAs are white, which is, you know, I knew, I already knew that, you know, about the, the male female piece, I didn't, I had no idea about the, um, Though that percentage being so high, mm-hmm. uh, three whereas only three point six percent are black, it makes sense that direct care staff uh, would be a similar percentage because usually folks start as a direct care staff and move their way up the ladder. Exactly. Um, so I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised at that at all. And that's something I, I know our company at least is, is trying to work on more around sort of hiring. The, but the first one I think was it was was most interesting and, and 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 I think might be interesting to break down a tiny bit is around racist policies and uh uh your article re- references um um Dr. Kendi mm-hmm. um and kind of and kind of his work in uh, in uh, in sort of anti-racism and that sort of thing and I've I read a couple of his books um, uh, talking about racist policies and essentially definitely pick up some candy stuff because you, you just, you, you get to, you get to learn about racist policies going back a thousand years um, and, 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 and how they perpetuated throughout. I'm, I'm curious, what, what kinds of policies are in place that, that, that are in, in sort of, today in, in maybe school settings and group home settings that, that would, could be considered racist policies. Yeah. So, um, in school settings, the zero tolerance policy is one that has Mm. been around, I think since the the Reagan era. Um, and Mm. that I would consider that as a racial policy because it disproportionately affects black and brown and Latinx students. Um, with this, I think the APA Association in 2008 came out with an article talking about um, has a zero tolerance policy actually done good? Has it done harm? How has it affected the school climate? 
And overall, the results show that those zero tolerance policies are not effective. They actually um, create a more hostile environment for the for the schools that actually use those policies. And again, students are being expelled and suspended from public schools. And there are not clear, um, the thing that makes the policies most variable is that there are not clear onset offset criteria, or there are not clear exclusionary inclusionary criteria. It is kind of based on the discretion of the, the teacher or the supervisor, right? So again, if we think about the other factors that we've talked about, so our racial biases, worry yep. mentality practice, yes, of course. lack of transparency, yeah. if I have an inherent yep. bias towards this student, he's bigger than me, he seems angry right now, oh, he just flipped yep. a chair, you know, um, they're more likely to engage in or implement, yes. trigger that discipline uh, policy, which yeah. is not doing any good. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of mm-hmm. sense that, uh, you know, that, uh, and I think that's, that's, that's the problem with a lot of policies, um, you know, uh, is that they don't have those sort of specific, you know, procedures associated with mm-hmm. them. Um, um, that that give you give you give you that you know that that should for a, a policy like that give you a really narrow window of places and and and, and sort of context and that 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 they can be used, and so you're right. I mean, when whenever you have a policy or a, or a contract or whatever or, or a legal proceeding or whatever that's not specific enough, it just opens up for interpretation and, and it's, it's hard to argue, you know, you know? Um, and, uh, so yeah, no, that, that's Mm -hmm. huge. And would your work address those sorts of things or like who's, or how do we address those racist policies? I guess is the question. The third secret word is cultural. How do we address the racist policies? That's a good question. At, le- uh, at least in these contexts. I'm not, not, not saying in the world. Like, I mean, that's, that's a, a good question. That's a, <laughs> <laughs> but like in the school, if you know where the school has a, uh, has a racist policy, is, is that going to be, is that going to be your realm at all to sort of address that or? I think how I would address it as a behavior analyst that consults with the school mm. is I would, after I've established a relationship with the district, the school, the principal, um, I would, I would just first ask to see, how do I say this? I would want to see what the needs are from the school related to discipline practices. So from that, they will probably share with me discipline data, Right. So how many student referrals or office referrals are received, how many expulsions, how many suspensions. They probably if that's a need from the district or from the school, they would probably share those data with me as a behavior analyst. So then what I can do is take those data and have some fun with it. Look at how do those um, kind of variables correspond with race, social economic status, grades, teachers. Right. Um, and more than likely, they're going to ask me, okay, after I've reviewed the data, like, what do I think? How do things look? 
And then that then bridges the conversation for me to have with them related to our discipline practices here, um, what the data currently are, where we want them to be, and what we can do to get them there. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And once again, we're not going to say, hey, principal, your policies are racist. Exactly. Yeah. Because uh, it's, it's not, it's not going to get us anywhere. No. <laughs> um, it's, it's all absolutely. in the finesse. It's all about being creative, yeah. being creative yeah. and um, soft skills. Yeah. Yeah. Not really cool. Um, not really, really good article. <laughs> Um, um, and, 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 and something I've been leveling about, uh, and again, I mentioned this already, but several of the sort of articles around, you know, uh, the isms in our field, um, um, is they really give, I think I really like, and this one's no, a great example. They, they should really give nice specifics on kind of, you know, actions and, and things you can do to address it, um, and, and I think this one's no different. There's one other. There was one other uh, variable, and maybe we already touched on it, and that was around. And and, and it seems like a no-brainer, I think, for for behavior analysts. But this is sort of the ineffective intervention. Mm-hmm. Um, was and, and again, that reminds me of uh, of some of my earlier experiences where we didn't have any, you know, functional assessments. We didn't have any positive behavior support plans or anything like that in place. All we had was crisis intervention training. That was our intervention. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and as we know, you know, um, you know, there's, there's not much there, you know, <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, uh, I do like that some of the, some of these intervention programs like MANT and safety care and whatnot, um, uh, advocate for those preventative interventions being in place, but I don't know. And again, maybe they do, but I don't know that those programs actually include those interventions. Um, you know, they just sort of say they're good to have. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So def- definitely the uh, the uh, the development of you know, I think you know, essentially the point is is if you can have good effective interventions and you don't need a crisis intervention plan, therefore you don't need to use those techniques. I don't think that's um, I don't think, I think, I think that should be a no-brainer for folks. But I think again, if you're working in some of those contexts, it's not a no-brainer for them. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's very true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, a really cool article. Uh, I've said that a few times now. I'll stop. <laughs> it was fun <laughs> but, to work on. Uh, that, it was very fun to work on. It was uh, yeah. triggering in the best yeah. and worst ways, and I hope that beyond the article being published that people actually read it and that people implement and begin to have conversations about making those changes in their organization. Absolutely. I totally agree. Um, I think we can wrap it up here. Do you have any sort of uh, last thoughts for, for, uh, for the world or better yet, or on a related note, kind of what what is what are the projects you're working on right now? Yeah, so right now I have a lot of things in the hopper. So I am, like I said, focused on writing grants, and I currently have a business at B Consultations where I consult and work hmm. with districts on pretty much everything we talked about today. So with right. that business, I am um, beginning to stretch my wings here in a new city in a new state and make those mm. connections from a 
professional or academic standpoint, I guess. I am collaborating with lots of authors on manuscripts related to um, what we talked about, active student responding, best teaching practices. I'm also um, an avid toilet trainer, so I have a manuscript in the hopper and focused on uh, ethical considerations and guidelines for practitioners conducting toilet training. Um, And I'm getting involved with, through my work with Juniper Gardens, I'm getting involved with a para-impact grant that is a multi-university collaboration grant-funded project, and I'm fairly new to it, but I am, again, learning a lot and Hmm. excited to get the ball rolling on data collection and training those teachers and paraeducators. That's fantastic. Really cool. I'm I'm really, uh, 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 I have some hope for our field with a lot of these new, new young uh, PhD folk that are just doing, doing some really cool, really important stuff. Um, uh, and, uh, you're definitely a prime example of that. Um, really good. Uh, thanks a lot for being on this podcast. And I hope, uh, once you're deeper into your work and you've, you've mastered grant applications and you're on some bigger projects that we could bring you back and talk. Some oh more. yeah, that would be fun. Thank you for inviting me. It's, it's been a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>